Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Ao. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Hey, Albert. Good to have you on board. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to share your story as engineer number one to being part of an engineering team of 100 people and being one of Indonesia's like leading and known fintech companies. So excited to share your personal journey in that aspect of it. Before that, let me share first a bit more about myself. So I grew up in Indonesia with Hokkien as my first language before learning Bahasa Indonesia. And I moved between different islands and provinces as well, went to local schools and university, but not an international one. And looking back to my childhood, because my parents only graduated from junior high school, we didn't have basic knowledges to design our life like what other people have. And as a result, I was always encouraged to think independently when making a certain decision. So I would ask fundamental questions or weird questions to my friends, like, why do we need to go to university? Or basically like uh, weird questions like that for some people. I know it sounded counterintuitive and a lot of my friends considered those as probably like dumb quote, stupid questions. But for me, I ended up learning by trial and error for me, it's like blessing in disguise instead because it forced me to think about my actual original goals instead of just blindly following the crowd or the common standard in the society. Long short story, this kind of habit led me into an unconventional career that I have. So first, I started a social enterprise in civic technology. So basically, we work with the government to promote open data or smart city initiative, but I decided to stop after a year because I couldn't figure out how to make it sustainable. And anyway, a lot of initiatives were merged into the government directly. So that's, that's okay for me at the time. Learning from that mistake, I started to find resources on the internet. I started to watch Y Combinator videos in YouTube on how to make something, not just to be successful, but also sustainable. And several months after, lucky enough, one of the YC companies went to Indonesia and it was Sendit. And I met them at the first YC event in Indonesia by Justin Khan. It was around January 2016. And at a time, even though they don't have a job posting somewhere, I tried to be brave enough to approach the founder asking for time to have a casual chat and basically just to know more about Sendit. And luckily, I was invited into their apartment and I ended up talking to the founders for around three hours until 2 a.m. in the morning and the rest is history. But shortly, I joined, even though at the time, a lot of my friends showed a lot of oppositions and told me that, oh, I should go to either big tech companies or I should go to consulting career and then 
MBA and then something that's more obvious for them. But at the end of the day, I still made up my mind to join because I was really clear on my goals and the three things that I was looking for at the time. So the first one is a small organization, which means I had a bunch of opportunity to start something from the ground up. The second one is, I would say, unsexy market, meaning that at the time, fintech was not sexy at all. Like a lot of operations are still manual. There were not a lot of companies in fintech. And that's, I think that's the reason why my friends saw that as an unknown thing. But for me, it's like the other way around. For me, it's like an opportunity to create something impactful. And the last thing is, I was just honestly inspired by the founder's mission. And FYI, none of them were from Indonesia, but they dedicated themselves to fly here and start something here in an unknown country for them. And I think at the risk of something hyperbolic, I would say that kind of inspiration is the one that influenced me to be audacious to move to the Philippines as well in 2019. Wow, that's an amazing journey. And I'm glad you shared uh, the early days of it. I'm just so curious. I mean, what was your first day at Zendit like? You know, take us back to, was it like a nice office? What was it like? It was a very humble beginning. We started by working from an apartment and a rented house for years, actually. We basically work, eat, play, and sleep there. And at the time, I think for me, the most important thing is mostly about ownership mentality. So I still remember when we have our first batch of customers, because we focus on building something people want, we even did several things that probably considered as extreme. So the example is when we release our first product, instead of waiting for customers to integrate, we went to customers' office directly. We invited customers to go to our office and we basically helped the customers uh, using their laptop to integrate. And that is also an interesting story where we tried to debug one of the payment system and we went to Alphamart. So Alphamart is basically like 7-Eleven. At the time, we were testing the bank transfer capability and we basically went there, brought our laptop there, and the back on the spot. And at the time, because we spent a long time there, I think the people on the cashier thought that we wanted to do a crime or something. So that's quite interesting. But actually, that worked for the customer. And the customer like went live in basically like less than a day at a time. Wow, that's amazing. And I love not just the humble beginnings and apartment like so many other founders, but also uh, getting mistaken as criminals. Yeah. I remember my last company as well. We were in my house working. I was busting to the seams. And I remember that we had an onboard in an executive. And I was like, okay, you know, your employee welcome session is in my uh, bedroom, right? And so, you know, everybody else just kind of laughed because that was the only room that was at a private spot to have a meetings and those were the days. I'm just kind of curious. I mean, obviously you've seen not just the, you know, the founding days of Zendit, but also the scaling days. How do you see leadership being important and how is it different across the different stages of the company? That's a very good question, actually. I see that leadership is like an operating system of the company. 
meaning that you can move as fast as you can, but going into probably a totally wrong direction. The role of leadership here is giving you a sense of purpose or intention so that you could navigate yourself into a correct direction. Especially in a high-growth company where the company almost evolves into a different animal every six months, the leadership needs to be evolving as well. So for example, the leadership when we were only 50 people would be different from when we were 300 people. So when it's 50 people, you can lead by example, you can do some of the jobs by yourself. But for 300 people, it's definitely not scalable. You need to also figure out the way to lead the certain teams, even though you are not managing them directly by things like explicit expectation, written culture, and more importantly, try to understand the unique capabilities of the team and support them to grow in their own way. So essentially, when you reach like more than 50 people and you become a manager or tech lead or something like that, you are still building a product, but your product is not the system anymore. And your product is the human itself. So you need to do whatever it takes to make sure that your team and the members understand the mission and can run independently to be thriving, actually. Yeah. And what's interesting is that, you know, obviously you're talking about this from an early engineer and engineering perspective, but also talking about from a company building perspective. I'm just so curious, like, do you feel like there's a difference between hashtag Silicon Valley, hashtag American, you know, <laughs> culture, you know, in terms of like leadership versus Indonesian leadership versus Southeast Asian leadership? Do you think there's a difference or things to be mindful about? That's a good question. Obviously, there are a lot of differences, but I would focus on one thing right now, which is, I think it's called ownership mentality. So leadership in most of the companies in Indonesia, I think people still saw that as, a, as an authority, like leaders shouldn't make a mistake. Leaders is like a role. And if you are a CEO, you don't have to do like the groundwork by yourself. But from the Silicon Valley perspective, that's the other way around. Like I still remember the first early days, our CEO and CTO even did the customer support directly. Like they did customer support for almost 12 hours every day. And basically they tried to own the end-to-end -end process from like requirements, development, customer support. And yeah, basically the end-to-end -end process and they own it from the start to the end, regardless of the position. Do you feel like American companies or companies of American background like YC focus more on ownership versus local team cultures? Or do you feel like that's all fake news? <laughs> it really depends on the company itself. But I think the unique thing in Zendit is like, we have a bunch of people from Silicon Valley mindset. We have a bunch of people from Indonesian mindset. We have a bunch of people from different countries mindset. So the mindset is like merged into like a totally different animal. And that's why I think in our culture, we, we also focus on ownership mentality. We also focus on the, we are like a family, which is like more like Indonesian culture. So 
the culture is kind of merged into company culture. That's why I think leadership is important here as well, because the leadership will determine whether the culture is evolving into something different, into something that's probably similar, or into something that's maybe better than the current culture. One interesting thing, of course, for Southeast Asia is that almost every Southeast Asian is thinking regionally from day one, right? They're thinking about not just our country, but also the next country in terms of either as a new market or as a source of talent, right? In terms of like moving people from country A to this country or setting up an engineering team over there. How do you think about the region? Do you think that's true or how true is that for you? In terms of regional thinking, I think you are, you are right that a lot of companies try to think like, oh, how can we expand to Malaysia? How can we expand to the Philippines, et cetera, et cetera. But our principle is, I would say, a bit different. We would like to focus on what customers want. So I think the reason we moved to the Philippines as well is like there are several customers in Indonesia and they want to expand to the Philippines. So it's basically like a direct request from the customer. And that's like how we justify the business case and the use case as well. And yeah, I think that's, I think that's our principle. And we focus on the customer request instead of like just blindly expand. And yeah, if you like blindly expand, there is a high risk that, oh, the customer demand here probably is not enough to grow the company. So we were very careful when we think about expansion and we really focus on the actual use case from the customer. You have this unique experience of also having set up engineering teams across Southeast Asia. What's some challenges and some opportunities that you see with that? This is something that I didn't realize when I haven't, haven't been into the Philippines. So actually, it's really important for the engineering team in the Philippines and engineering team in Indonesia, or basically in the future, engineering team in the countries that you have to move into one direction. So I think the risk of having engineering team in multiple countries is like, oh, the Philippines team have roadmap A, the Indonesian team have a roadmap B. And if you structure your engineering team based on the country, there will be like a clashing between like Philippines roadmap versus Indonesian roadmap, even if the product is the same. And it could slow down product development a lot, actually. So I think the insight is like you should structure your team based on anything that makes sense. And for us, we structure the team based on the product. So instead of like having Indonesian versus Philippines team. We are one as a product A, we are one as a product B. So the prioritization to develop Indonesia versus Philippines should be determined together. What was it like flying to Philippines uh, to set up the engineering team? It was fun. At the time, I actually was flying alone. Like, and then at the time, there was no office yet so i basically just worked from like coffee shop or something like that it's like an early start of days where you brainstorm an idea you try to blend with the environment around you to understand the problem so it was fun and i saw like a lot of evolutions like from maybe working from my room working from coffee shops when we have three people and working in a small office when we have eight people and working at 
again, uh, rented house, like when we have 20 people. Was that culture shock for you from Indonesia to Philippines? Depends on how you see that. <laughs> I think in terms of in terms of the language, obviously that was a culture shock because in Indonesia, as you know, we don't use English like in daily basis. And in the Philippines, everybody speaks English, so you cannot use Bahasa Indonesia at all. And I I think for the first two weeks I faced like challenges like how to speak to them, like they didn't really understand and until like I used Google Translate to speak for me. And yeah, but anyway, I tried to learn by building my AI engine to uh, practice myself. And long short story, I overcame it and I was able to speak to my teammates as well in the Philippines. And also I learned some Tagalog as well. So I could plan with them like, hey, <laughs> this is the Tagalog joke. And <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Amazing that you learned Tagalog. If you ever have a chance, go check out some improv. Philippines is uh, one of the best in Southeast Asia because they have a long tradition of comedy and uh, exposure. And I guess one thing is, how should Southeast Asian companies be thinking about engineering teams and working remotely across the region, right? I mean, it's a big topic, obviously, in the pandemic year where everyone's going regional, working from home. But are there best practices for engineering teams to adopt, especially in the Southeast Asia context? I think in terms of working remotely, I don't think that that is something special in Southeast Asia because in Sunday, we have teams from Canada, from UK, from the US as well. So based on our experience, working remotely is really, really similar across the region, across the world. But fundamentally, the important thing is first, documentation. So because you couldn't meet physically at the office, you need to make sure that your documentation is proper. And the second one is more about team building. Because you couldn't have like physical event, like going to the party together, you need to be more intentional on like setting up Google Calendar event, a Zoom event, just for having a casual chat um, outside work. So you could basically build the bonding through those kinds of events. That's so true. So many companies have already been effectively remote, right? Because if you're regionally separated, you already have to work remotely. So there's not too much of a gap between that and stepping up to a full-time work from home or work from anywhere situation. I'm so curious. I mean, do you feel like there's like language or cultural differences that you have to figure out? Because, you know, we have so many different nationalities working together. I remember my time at Bain, we had over 30 nationalities in the same office as well. And you know, we always had to be very explicit about like, we prefer this, so make sure, you know, we don't do that, right? You know, and you'd be careful about how we organize meals as well. So I'm just kind of curious whether you see that in your team as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's the reason why I also mentioned before, when you have 300 people, it's really important to have a written culture. So in the written culture, we also include the things like, oh, for speaking, I think we prefer people to be direct because we are not a mastermind. We couldn't read your mind. So it's really important to be honest and to be like candid as soon as possible so people can understand you. So that's just one 
of the example, but basically the cultures that we want to have in the company, we wrote it down and we publish it to every member in the company. And for yourself, obviously, as an engineer, how do you stay on top of everything, right? I mean, you know, there's the news of Indonesia and Southeast Asia, there's the fintech side, there's the engineering side. How do you stay on top of your learning and professional development? The answer is you cannot, but that is a trick. So yeah, because you have like multiple teams, like multiple product managers as well in your team. So you should try to learn instead of by yourself, try to learn something together because your time is limited and you should spend your time on managing people. So you should basically ask or encourage people around you to learn as well so that maybe like you can organize an event where they present, hey, this is the trend in the fintech market in the Philippines. And hey, this is the engineering trend in the Indonesia or something like that. But basically, you try to split your learning materials among your team because right now you are not just alone, but you are one team. So the learning process should be considered as the learning process of the team. Personally, have you faced any hurdles or personal challenges? Yeah, <laughs> there were a lot. However, there are two challenges that I always remember. The first one is when it comes to asking for help. So because I used to think independently because of my childhood, I often thought that asking for help is terrible, but actually it's not. I think the real problem is when you ask for help, but you haven't tried anything. So the way I overcome this challenge is I try to do my own research and try my best before asking for help. So basically being really clear about, hey, this is the problem, this is what I've tried, and this is the help that I need. So by being really clear about that kind of help, I think it will help people to give you more accurate advice as well. So that's number one. And number two, I think it took me a while to realize that it's okay for leader to make a mistake. I always thought that when you lead a certain movement, when you lead teams, you are not allowed to make mistakes because it will impact not only yourself, but your team as well. But I think the realization that I got is it's okay to make mistakes, but it's not okay if you don't learn from it. So the way I overcome that challenge is every time I make a mistake, try to note it. And I think as a result, currently I have a long list of mistakes that I've ever made and the lessons learned as well. So I could use it as a future purpose, not only for myself, but for my team as well. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I think it must have been quite a journey for you to come to that. And I resonate with you. I mean... I remember my first job, I was told by my manager flat out to start asking questions because, you know, I wasn't asking any questions because I didn't want to sound, see, similarly, I didn't want to seem like I didn't know something. And I had to think about it. I was like, oh, you know, some part of it was like, like my upbringing and some of it was my military training. So it was quite interesting to come to some reflection on that as well. Yeah, I'm kind of curious, you know, what resources are available for people who are looking to become engineer number one? right? To be part of a fast growth startup. 
what advice would you give them? Would you point them at certain directories or books to read? How would you think about it? It's not specifically for being engineer number one, but it's a good resource for thinking about your life in general. So I highly recommend people to read Outliers. So it's a book by Malcolm Gatwell. I found it super, super useful in my life and career because I think a lot of people say success is a combination of luck, hard work, and intelligence. And luck is basically something that is very, very hard to control. And this book helps us to understand what success really means and how to engineer your environment regardless of your race, privilege, so that you can be as close as possible to be lucky and maximize your probability of success. And on top of that, it also taught me to see that success is different for every individual because our privileges are uniquely different. So we need to create our own definition of success and basically stop comparing ourselves to other people's metrics. I love the book Outliers. I love that book so much. I mean, I think it was also very instrumental for me as well, thinking through my own career and skills. I think one thing I also came out of it reading Outliers was not thinking and saying like, oh my God, he's so much better than me <laughs> and I suck and therefore I shouldn't get started. But be more like, okay, you know, he's probably cut, put in a thousand hours, 10,000 hours, right? A hundred thousand hours of practice to this thing. And I'm at the 10 hour mark, right? A 20 hour mark. And just being comfortable with that gap. Because once you define a gap as a number of hours, right? dedicated to improvement of that craft, whatever it is, then it feels a lot more achievable, right? Because now all you have to do is clock in more hours of practice. Thanks for reminding me about it. And I probably should reread that book again as well. I'm so curious as well. For yourself, you've also been very much involved in fintech and you've seen a huge wave of fintech, of which I think Zendit was pretty much the pioneer in terms of you know, the chronology as well as the geography. And now there's so many more fintech companies, right? So what do you think about all those fintech companies that are coming in? What are the trends and opportunities that you see? At least for me, it will be super duper interesting because right now we have players like Sendit. The infrastructure is definitely more ready compared to probably five years ago. So if you want to build a fintech company right now, you can use basically infrastructure in Sendit in other companies as well as you're building blocks. So you could focus more on your fintech business process. You basically don't need to care a lot about your financial infrastructure. So I think that's an interesting moment because it never happened before. And right now is the perfect moment where you could try to bring your innovation instead of focus on your infrastructure. So yeah, it's basically like right now we have AWS for financial infrastructure and you could basically just outsource your manual tasks and focus on things that matter to you. What's advice that you would give to people who want to set up another fintech company? Well, <laughs> there are a lot of advices that I have because as I mentioned before, I have a list of mistakes that I collect. But I think the most important thing is number one, culture. So I think 
it's really important to think about your culture in general, your leadership in general. Like you need to be very aware of your leadership, your culture evolutions as your company grow, because you cannot be like, oh, this is the culture for five people. And we wanted to use this culture when we are 300 people. I think it doesn't work. So you need to be aware that leadership is evolving and it's really important in fintech, especially when it comes to managing like stakeholders outside of your company. Your leadership will be really important because you need to explain your reasoning of doing something to maybe like partners like in fintech is like banks, it's like other financial institutions, etc., etc. And the second one. I think it's related to the thing that I just mentioned, which is partnership management. Because in FinTech, it's really, really hard to build something good in FinTech. So you need to work together, not just with your team, but together with the partnership that you have, like government, financial institutions, banks, etc., etc. Because it will be a very, very long journey and you need to move together for that. Awesome. Just kind of curious as well, Indonesia is such a hot topic, right? And so many companies are going to Indonesia these days. Everybody always says like, you know, if everybody in Indonesia bought a Coca-Cola, right? <laughs> and then we'll be, we'll have made it. So I'm kind of curious, are there any common myths or misconceptions that you've heard about Indonesia? That's a very great question. And I think this is what we learned in Sandel as well. So one misconception that people outside Indonesia did is actually they thought they could just go to Indonesia and basically bring the best practices, bring like whatever ideas that they have in, in the US or maybe outside Indonesia and apply it here. But in reality, it will not work because the market in Indonesia is really different in terms of culture it's already pretty different in terms of infrastructure. It's already pretty different. So you need to even work harder because you need to build the first layer of infrastructure, the first layer of foundation first before applying the lessons learned that you have outside Indonesia. So I think that's the misconception that people has. Like a lot of people thought you could just go and build something, but you also need to build the foundation as well. That's so true. You know, I think everybody knows that Indonesia is an order of magnitude in terms of where they are, which is, of course, where the opportunity is. But I think they often don't think about how they themselves need to evolve, right? Not just the, the product, but also their approach and the conversations they need to have. And I think the converse of it, of course, is that a lot of people arrive in Singapore and they're like, wow, you know. <laughs> Southeast Asia is really easy, right? You know, Indonesia is just a short flight away. So if Singapore is like this, we'll be able to go to Indonesia, no problem. And I'm just like, whoa, 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 hold up. <laughs> you know, nowhere like that at all. Last question. If you could go back in time 10 years, what advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> That's a deep question. But for me, so as I mentioned before, I understand that success is a combination of luck, hard work, and intelligence. And I'm happy that I work as hard as possible in the past, but I would ask myself to also consider one more element into the formula, which people often forget, and that is happiness. 
So at the end of the day, a lot of successful movements need a very, very long time. And the only way you can make sure that you can do something in a sustainable way is to care about your happiness. Awesome. Thank you so much, Albert. You're welcome. That was fun.